0: If you think about you're gonna start a company or you're gonna go work for a company, you wanna work for one that you sort of, you believe in the mission. Like I I just, you know, because you're gonna spend so much of time in in your life working for that company or, or being part of that project. You want it to be something that you care about.
1: Hey there. Welcome to another episode of Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast by Simbi Foundation. If you've listened before, welcome back. If you're new, thanks for listening. We're happy to have you here. My name is Aaron, and I'm the host of Impact in the 21st Century, which is a podcast that celebrates the impactful work of thought leaders around the world, shares the stories of the inspiring individuals who are behind it, and teases out how we can all lead more impactful lives. I'm deeply excited to share this episode with you featuring Mark Tarpening. Mark is best known for co-founding Tesla but he also created the world's first e-reader. He has a knack for finding incredibly difficult problems to tackle and then solving them. And make sure to stick around to the end to hear Mark's advice on integrating positive impact into your career and how we can all lead more impactful lives. But before we dive in, I'd like to tell you about an organization behind this podcast, Simbi Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education in refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning materials, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to power entire schools and communities. Feel free to learn more at simbifoundation.org. And if you like the episode, consider donating to this impactful organization. Thanks again for listening. And Mark, it's so good to connect with you. Thanks for taking the time to join me. Oh, it's great to be here. So before we jump right in, I'd like to take a moment to share a brief list of your accomplishments and some of your track record, just to provide some context for the conversation. So you co-founded and created the first e-reader with Nouveau Media. You co-founded Tesla and brought the Roadster to fruition. Uh, You're a venture partner at Spiro Ventures. You're involved in school board and local politics. You're a husband and father to three. Uh, Am I missing anything here? No, that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, something that I just really love about you is how you have this tendency to pick problems that, that, you, that you do want to solve that are, that are technically challenging problems, but also that radically transform entire sectors as we know it. And so you've done this from you know, e-readers uh, to the electrification of the auto industry. And saying that your impact has been significant would be an understatement. I'd, I'd love you to just walk us through or walk me through the thinking and the journey behind Nouveau Media and Tesla and what what excited you about those respective problems and, and opportunities?
0: Well, in Nouveau Media, that was that was an interesting one. So Martin Eberhard and I, who also co-founded, I you know, co-founded Tesla with, um, we were this was, you know, in 90, 1997, um, we were looking for technology that could be applied to other things. So we had come from, we'd done a bunch of consulting. We had uh, been involved in the disk drive industry. We had uh, done display stuff. I mean, we'd done all kinds of stuff in Silicon Valley. And all of these technologies were changing a lot. So with with Nuvo Media and and electronic reading, that was really the, the application of display technology. We had seen early samples. I mean, we had sought out early samples of displays, because it was at that time, I know it sounds ridiculous now, but at, at that time, it was all about whether displays, flat panel displays could be good enough to actually read on. There, there weren't really any that were good enough. Uh, and we had seen the very latest coming out of Japan. We had, you know, traveled all through Japan seeing these things and convinced ourselves that this technology was going to be able to, to be on a display someone could carry with them. And, and again, you know, it sounds silly now, but at the time, You know, the best you had was something like a Palm Pilot, which showed people liked gadgets, but that display size was very small. The contrast ratio was very poor. You couldn't really, you know, you could read your calendar on it or or look up a phone number, but you couldn't really like read a novel. No one was going to do that. So when we saw that that technology, that the displays were going to get good enough, were just barely going to be good enough by the time we went into production, that's when we launched Nubo Media.
1: And in 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 launching Nova Media, I mean, were you a prolific reader before then? Were you thinking, I just want to fit more books in, much like yeah, the it, iPod thinking?
0: Yeah, exactly. So so we had both Martin and I read a lot. Um, we we looked at you know it's funny at the time we looked at a bunch of different uh, things that were just getting ready for technology, uh, you know, sort of change. Uh, another one that we we identified was video recording onto hard disks, which. At the time, was actually really quite difficult to to do that kind of compression in real time, and then also the actual bandwidth of data going onto a hard disk to keep that fast enough um, without without jittering, and then on top of that, just running out of hard disk space. You know, how much could you really record? And, and we had been in the disk drive industry, so we had seen all of that change, and we thought about making you know DVRs, which didn't exist at the time. We thought you know we could do that. That's that's going to be just possible right now. But it seemed sort of uh, not right since neither of us owned a TV um, nor VCRs and and nor did we ever watch TV. So so that it just didn't feel quite right. You know, we didn't know the market very well. We didn't know the use case. Uh, whereas reading, you know, we read a lot and we both travel, especially I, I was traveling a lot in a previous life and in that travel, it was just a pain, you know, you had all these books and magazines, I always had this giant bag of stuff. And then I was going to places where I couldn't get new material, you know, for for months at a time. So I'd bring, you know, books and books and books, bags of books, it was ridiculous. So the, uh, that was sort of the idea is that, you know, we could build an e-reader that could hold, you know, a dozen books. And more and and you could it had to to be able to have a charge that lasted for one intercontinental flight from the west coast uh, because that was our use case and we figured if we could do that if we could go from you know san francisco to london or whatever um and and you could read the whole time that would pretty much solve most uh flight times especially at that time that was kind of the longest flight you could take uh and and it's such
1: an interesting milestone to to target i like that
0: yeah. we we also had uh, a desire since we'd got since we read a lot uh, and we admired authors, we thought if we got into the sort of book publishing world, we'd get to meet publishers and we'd get to meet authors. so we we had a second it would be a fun experience. So did you meet
1: any fun authors or publishers along the way?
0: Oh yeah, We met essentially all the publishers. I mean, you know, certainly representatives of all all the publishing houses, because we had to make deals with the with the publishers. Uh, But then we also got to, you know, we when you're in that world, you get invited to, you know, fun parties, largely in New York, which I had little kids at the time. Um, Well, actually, at that time, I didn't have little kids. I was working, you know, getting closer to it. But uh, I, didn't, I ended up not being in New York very much. Uh, all the publishing houses are in New York, so that's where you have to go. We had an office in New York and Martin was there a lot. But we met a bunch of West Coast authors um, and, uh, and you know went to different literary events kind of thing and book, book events. It was great fun.
1: I, I wanna ask you about e-readers in general. Do you, right now, literacy rates, even in higher income countries like the US are actually on the decline, which is kind of tragic. Um, and I'm wondering if you think, if the e-reader has lived up to the possibilities and opportunity, and if, if you think that there is more that could be done. Oh, uh,
0: so first off, I mean, you know, it, it's a tiny percentage of, of the, the total uh, book market, I believe. I'm not entirely sure what the numbers are any, anymore. But, uh, and for some people, it's magical. You know, for, for a certain, you know, set of the population, we were surprised, you know, like one of the things that we did, and when we, we created the, the formats for it, uh, we, we wanted to make sure that you could set the, set the type size, the font size to anything you wanted, and it would, you know, reflow, like, you know, it, we do it all the time with HTML. In fact, we, we used uh, a, a derivative of HTML, and it turned out that that was incredibly uh, enabling for people uh that you know we would get these these fan letters basically from people to say i haven't been able to read a first run book you know for 10 years and suddenly you know because my vision failed and and now i can i can buy instantly one of these you know these these top books and i can just crank the font size up to some huge number which allows me to, to read uh and and I think that e-readers, you know, certainly for a whole segment of the population, and, and I will say that I'm now <laughs> to the point where I'm like, hey, you know, I need glasses. I mean, these people obviously had, you know, more vision problems, but but uh, it's really nice to be able to change the font size, you know, at will. And I think that that's, that's so when you say, did it, has it lived up to its, its potential? For some people, it's magical, you know, it really is incredibly enabling. Uh, in general, I mean, for the most part, people that do read read on 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 print still, and that's fine too. You know, it's it's a pretty decent format. You know, it's it's relatively compact, and you know, it doesn't need batteries and it doesn't have to be charged and stuff. But but there is a lot there's a lot to be said for having you know all the books you could possibly want, especially now with with bistable displays and extremely long you know battery lives. Uh, but is there more to do? Certainly. I mean, you know, your, your work at Simbi shows that even just, you know, promoting literacy, using voice, you know, using the, the sort of sound and, and voice with the reading, you know, with the actual text is a huge, you know, huge enabling uh, technology. And that's something that a book can't do. It's, you know, it's static. It just sits, sort of sits there. Literacy going down everywhere. You know, that's it. That has been a concern since the advent of television. Really, I mean, that was uh, there was commissions in the 50s on you know what this was going to mean for the society, and yet you know by and large we've remained you know somewhat literate. One thing being in the education field for a while uh, later in my life was about early reading and how the data on early reading uh, correlating to sort of later success in reading is terrible. That. You know the, this this obsession with learning to read earlier and earlier doesn't translate into any uh, n- any gains later on, and, and in fact may correlate with with less literacy uh, as an adult. So I think that there's definitely a lot of work to do in both how to teach reading, how to teach reading for people who have trouble reading, but also I mean just in general, and then you know how to how to make you know compelling content that people want i do think that there is an appeal to being able to see a book or hear about a book and then download it and have it in your hand instantly i you know people tend to buy more books that way because if you have to that oh with the next time that i'm on you know you know amazon or i go to a bookstore you know i'll pick that up that doesn't happen quite as much as you go oh click and uh, and you can read
1: it so first of all on the, on the tv front uh, you're, you're spot on, right? Literally, since since the introduction of Vs in mid '50s, early '60s, we we see a, a continual decline in in reading. Um, the, the, and then there's a there's a group of people, and I'd love to hear more about your experience on on the education front, because I, I understand that you've been involved in uh, as a decision maker. At, I think for for a full district, is, mm-hmm. is that correct? It's
0: admittedly a a small district, but yeah, I I was on the school board for nine years uh, here in in my uh, hometown here.
1: Right. And I I also really loved what you had to say about actually getting involved in in local politics and seeing that you could make it an impact in in that space, which definitely resonated. Because I think a lot of people turn around and say, ah, it's slow and bureaucratic. I have no interest in, in, in trying to dent it
0: yeah lo- local politics actually works. you know, I, I don't know how it works at the, the bigger level, the state and the, and the federal level here in the US. but but certainly uh, local politics, you know you could if you just show up, showing up is so important in local politics that you just you, that, that in itself is a, a revolutionary act. <laughs> is to simply show up.
1: <laughs> but, uh, I guess my question for you on on this front though is so so the TV is introduced. And then you have a lot of folks who who are part of the only physical book camp, and then you've got a lot of educators who are part of the, you know, they're, they're more accommodating and welcoming for, for new tech. And when I think about it as more of a macro trend, when I look at what Facebook and TikTok and the highest paid engineers on the planet being paid to essentially distract you with instant gratification and very unique hook model tools, if we... I, my my thinking and it kind of relates back to the e-reader but i feel like there's just this tremendous opportunity to be engaging people in in lifelong reading to be to be fun, getting kids at a very young age to become these prolific readers and it's not that they have to be an early reader at a super young age and they it's just that you have to build the behavior of reading in order to be a lifelong learner and i i guess my question for you is If in your perfect world, if you could go back right now and just invent the first e-reader 2.0, would you employ some kind of gamification and and various techniques to to hook people? Um, One thing
0: that you can do with e-readers, which I haven't seen really elegantly done yet, but we were experimenting with it even in the 90s, is you can see where people are spending time reading you can see where in a book when you, when they're reading a book you can see where they slow down um where they lose interest and maybe you know decide to to go get a snack or whatever and, and pause pause the reading if you put it on pause for a while um and I've always wondered, and the authors don't see any of that data. And, and, and it's not even clear. I mean, I mean, we certainly were collecting it as an experiment just to, to, to try to understand. Actually, we were we were trying to understand the interface better. But really quickly, we we felt that it could be really valuable to authors uh, and to publishers to understand, you know, what, what excites the reader in a way. I mean, it, it's a little creepy, admittedly. Um, but it does show, you know, when somebody just can't put the book down, uh, is is a fascinating experience, and and we've all had that, and you know you can capture that and feed that back into the authors and into the publishers and say, you know, although everyone bought this book, nobody read this one really, but it was like a thing that everyone had to buy, but but nobody really read it, whereas uh, this other book, people just couldn't put down, uh, and and you know, but this, from the sales numbers, you would see the same. know you'd see the same thing so i'm not sure that i'd be so into gamification of it but you know i think that there's a lot of instrumentation that could provide authors um, some interesting feedback you know as to what is compelling
1: people are reading books you have this idea that the tech may just be good enough and you decide OK, and if we can make sure that the battery lasts for 12 hours or however long that long distance flight is, we're, we're going to be in, in a in a good state. We can do something with this. Now, are you applying you know what Musk will famously call a first principles approach or, or what are you what process are you laying out and what milestones are you hoping to achieve in order to turn this crazy idea into a massive business?
0: Well so the, the interesting thing about something like like you know ebooks is that there is a content component um which is super super important I mean that's the thing that matters right mm-hmm. so there's all of the regular engineering and those you know all these milestones around that, that engineering to just get to get the the actual physical consumer electronic device you know packaged the supply chain set up the you know figuring out how we're going to distribute it through local stores and and Barnes and Noble's obviously as it turned out um as they, when they invested so so there's that piece and that's kind of a not a normal thing but that's stuff that you know we were familiar with and silicon valley does that kind of stuff right uh, on on the flip side of that there was we had to acquire content and that turned out to be complicated because it turned out that the book industry is super old. I mean, obviously it's super old, but, but I mean like really old, like, you know, some of these companies are hundreds of years old and the same people are running it. Like it, it hasn't changed in, you know, 150 years. Some of the laws that govern the way books can be bought and sold actually predate the U S constitution. So they're actually grandfathered in from uh, British common law. So you have to do with special lawyers, which are specially expensive to deal with those kinds of contracts because of of this like crazy craziness that the that the publishing world lives in. So we had to really understand that whole process. And things that we thought were important to the publishing industry turned out not to be, um, which was, you know, that's one of those things where from the outside, you think, you know, the answer. And then as you get deeply involved, you realize, Oh, they've really thought this out. And this is not, you know, with, when an industry has been around for that long, they have optimized everything super, super well. So to disrupt that, to, to, to really, you know, compete well in that your, your invention or your technology has to really be kind of orthogonal in some way, or, and, and both maybe complemented in other ways. I mean, it's, it, it, it just can't be, you know, are you going to save a few cents over here? Because they, they're really good at that. They've already done that. So
1: you said when you're launching a new technology, you want to do it when it is just possible, not too soon and not too late. And so, so you go ahead and you do that with ebooks and, and you're a, you sell the organization. And then what, t- tell me about some of the the early thinking behind Tesla and just some of those early conversations.
0: Well, so you know we we you know ended up selling uh, selling Nova media and uh, and then both Martin and I did other things for a while for a few years. and that this, that was at a time when it was a good time to be doing other things because the dot com boom had happened and busted, and there was you know lots of carnage here in Silicon Valley, and it was difficult to start new things for a little while. But by 2003, you know, we were kind of ready to do something new and we looked at a bunch of things. And and Martin, in particular, was getting worried about uh, global warming, which in 2003 was was a little less obvious, a lot less obvious, I should say. So I was really worried about oil consumption from sort of a national security standpoint, an economic standpoint, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and also, of course, from an environmental perspective, but I wasn't as convinced as, as Martin was on global warming. Um, very quickly after that I, I was, but not initially. And, and we knew that batteries were getting better. You know, we'd seen that in the consumer electronics world and we like lived and died that with, with our e-readers. And we'd been following that industry since we started the e-reader, but also we'd been following how it kept getting better and better and better. And this was again one of these things where, looking at, it's like, well, what's changing? What's, what are there? What kinds of technologies that, that are applicable that are, that are happening in one place that are being driven by demand someplace might have, you know, some implication someplace else. Uh, the display thing that we ended up with. Was a uh, was a special kind of display. The reason we were able to create a really readable display was because there was a huge explosion of Japanese golf computers, and and golf computers are out in the sunlight, and they needed to have very very high contrast uh, sun displays that worked in, in bright light. And and that allowed and so Japan had been focusing on that problem and that was perfect for for e-readers it turned out and likewise with the the battery life this this need for longer battery life and more power uh, when we looked at looked at that application to cars I mean we could see that even in 2003 the batteries were were just good enough um, they weren't uh, they weren't great but they we could make a compelling product. Using that that battery technology, and we also knew, looking at that history of batteries, that every year it was getting better and cheaper. So if we started, you know, uh, now in two thousand three, you know, by the time we had a car out, it would likely the performance would be better, the pricing would be better. But you know, we didn't know, but we, but it, it at least worked right now. But it would really probably be better when we when we launched, and then looking forward. As, as we create that demand that was just going to make it even better and cheaper so so we felt that it would feed on itself uh, so it had a good a good possibility of success:
1: It's unbelievable I mean' I'm just I'm just thinking about the equivalent would be someone sitting in Japan thinking let's make more let's get more people golfing so that we can bring the cost of these golf computers down so that we can make an e-reader
0: well right exactly and, and that, that's that's what you, that's the kind of thing that, that you want to look for is you want to yeah. look for these things which were where they're they're focused on one thing but you know the app the there's a, a broader um, applicability just the, of the technology that perhaps they're not seeing
1: right and so you if i understand correctly you were really responsible for heading up the the engineering side of, of the roadster is that correct
0: yeah so i was the the head of engineering but you know for. It's a little deceptive. So, in the in the car world, there are lots of engineering heads and lots of of, of different pieces of the puzzle. Because you have, you know, mechanical engineering, you know, tremendous mechanical engineering. You've got uh, sort of the, the power electronics in, the, in the, the, the the well, in in our case, you have the thing that makes the car go. But that's just a small piece of the engineering required to build a car. Uh, and so. We had a variety of different engineering heads. I was in charge of the, you know, the thing that made the car go, uh, and and then over time, as you get as you staff up, you know, your your scope becomes narrower and narrower. So, so eventually, we found some really awesome people who knew a lot about power engineering, which is, you know, the thing that the really the drivetrain engineering. So I was able to 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 give, you know, that that ended up somewhere else. And I was responsible for the for the electronics that that monitored the batteries and did all, you know, all the stuff that the car does that isn't making the wheels spin. Uh, And that was sort of later. And that that's a a typical progression, you know, you at the beginning, you sort of start with all hats and then you, you get narrower and narrower and, you know, deeper and deeper as you go as you go along.
1: So you start your one, one day you're programming how pages turn on an e-reader and the next you're programming how a car is is starting and stopping and the electrical side of that
0: yeah it sounds funny but you know in 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 between there though you know or or along that journey um you know my experience or or my specialty is is firmware Mm -hmm. which is you know software that's embedded in hardware and it tends to have to be really reliable and in fact what i was doing in the middle east was all around that and then when i got into the to the hard disk business when i came back from the middle east i worked in the hard drive industry and that's all about unbelievable reliability uh you you know 1 in a million is a com- complete catastrophe you know like that's mm-hmm. one in it, you, because the data is being moved back and forth so often that if if only 1 in a million fails it's going to be failing every couple minutes mm-hmm. so you have to have these these incredible cycles of validation and, and real high accuracy to make sure that you never make a mistake with the data. And, and that same sort of discipline is what you need when you, when you push on that accelerator and you want to make absolutely sure that, that the computer is synthesizing the correct, correct waveforms to, to, to make the motor, you know, to, to increase the torque on the motor or to decrease or whatever your, your the accelerator pedal is telling it. That's got to be rock solid and completely understood and and you know there it has it's not just a sort of data integrity issue. Obviously it's a physical safety issue. so it's, the stakes are even higher. Uh, so so it isn't as unrelated as it seems. Uh, you know, you, you think about it and you're like, oh, well, you know it's e-readers and it's you know but, but it's the, the, the underlying software that makes these things go uh, is is actually kind of related right?
1: I think it just blows my mind how significantly you sing not single-handedly, but how how significantly you've disrupted two industries that that seemed impenetrable in one lifetime and it it, it is quite amazing well but but remember you I mean, you say
0: it, but it takes you know all of these things, there are lots of people trying these things and and most of them for whatever reason don't succeed and the ones that do succeed it's not just a person or a couple of people, you know like Tesla has you know Fifty or eighty or hundred thousand employees now, you know, mm-hmm. doing its thing. And even when when we left, when, you know, when Martin left and then I left a little bit later after the Roadster was shipping, you know, we were a company of of hundreds of people, you know, which you know by comparison now, you know, the company was quite small, but. And and we had employed many many hundreds of others you know along the way to to make that vision happen. So it isn't just you know oh a few people do this. I mean you know it's it's really a team sport, and it's a especially the more complicated the technology, you know the teams get very very large. Uh, there's a great picture of you know, of one segment of the team of the Roadster when we were delivering the first Roadsters. And, you know, it fills the frame because it took a lot of people. And that's only the people that happened to be there that day that were right there and could get their, get their you know, face into the picture.
1: Right. So w- walk me through some of the the early history of Tesla, if you don't mind. So you and Martin co-found the company. And I- I'd love to understand a bit of the h- history, but also the, the, what I understood was that you raised... I think you raised a, like a seven and a half million Series A, and you knew that you needed to ship a certain amount of of Roadsters in order to make it to the next kind of production milestone. Is that correct?
0: Well, sort of. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. So, so we start the company in in two thousand three. We spend in, in July of two thousand three, and then we spend uh, actually uh, tomorrow will be so July first is the the day. So we're recording this on June thirtieth in 2003 and we spent from that date until the end of the year basically the holidays the christmas holidays figuring out if it was possible you know and 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 really flushing out how we were going to do it uh you know what what kinds of technology was going to was going to work we had run some tests we wrote business plans we did spreadsheets you know we did all the stuff that you expect and we created the deck the investment deck and then started looking for money in in January two thousand four, uh, and we we put in money you know to fund it along the way, but 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 really we needed you know seven or eight million to start, and now that would be like a, a seed round, mm-hmm. uh, but at the time it was series there were the word seed didn't exist I don't yeah. think then you know it was series A was where you started, uh, and so so we went looking we found some a couple of VCs that. Uh, uh, which that said yes, but they they don't lead. So you know we were looking for lead investors. It's for, for those familiar with it, you need or not familiar, you need a, you need the the lead investors to set the terms. Uh, and we pitched Elon, who was in his first year at SpaceX. So he had started SpaceX, and SpaceX, you know, literally was building rocket ships, but you know hadn't but hadn't had any. I mean, hadn't even they hadn't even tested the first motor yet. Like this was really really early. So. Uh, we went and visited him down in, I think it was Hawthorne. It's some some Los Angeles, wherever wherever SpaceX was at the beginning. And uh pitched him and he, you know, peppered us with questions over the course of a of a weekend and then said, you know, I'm in. I, I love the vision. He was, you know, totally supportive of the vision and he invested, he led the round, and then that catalyzed everything, and then all the, the other money came in. But that wasn't what we needed to, see, to get into production for the roadster. That was You know, we had a multi-tiered plan of milestones to, and each time we complete a milestone, we'd raise more money. Mm -hmm. So that first one was simply to prove out that this, this kind of battery could be put into uh, a large battery pack safely and and in a way that would make sense for an automotive application. So that, that was really, that was all the first, that, that first money was supposed to do. And then we we did that we you know we we created uh, what's called a mule in the industry, which is a is a a car that's a little bit of one car and a little bit of both uh, another car, but it doesn't reproduce. That's why it's called a mule. It's it's for it's a rolling test bed. So we created a mule and uh, got to drive that with our with our battery pack using uh, uh, power electronics and motors from a company called AC Propulsion, which was kind of the top of the line hobbyist conversion you know electric car company at the time so we we got that working and demonstrated that the the key thing the thing that was the hardest the thing that was the 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 the, the enabling technology we could make work you know, we we could we could prove that that worked, and you want to get rid of those big scary things first. You know, you don't do the easy stuff first and then hope that you get the big scary thing figured out. You know, before it's too late. You know, you want to do the big scary thing to begin with. So that was the big scary thing, and we did that first, and then so that allowed us to raise more money. Which then our next milestone was around showing that we could have a full drivetrain that met the performance specs that we believed we you know would meet, and that was. Um, you know, complicating had all its own you know issues. At the same time, we were uh, engaged with with Lotus that was going to screw the car together and help us do, actually build the the car part, if you will. Uh, and you know, we would supply the drivetrain, we'd supply all the electronics, and and they would screw the car together. And uh, and and they were they they had a contract manufacturing wing that did that for other car companies. So, it, it, we fit into their business model, which was really important.
1: And so, you did that. I th- it was the first couple thousand units that you sold were, uh, were uh, Elises, right?
0: Uh, well, they're, they're not Lotus Elises. No, they're, they were built on the same factory line as the okay. Lotus Elise. And because we use some of the same parts, and because their factory machinery uh, only could grab certain sized cars. The, our car ends up looking a lot like a Lotus. At least it's longer. It has a different frame. It has a, a, a redesigned uh, uh, aluminum frame, which was, you know, is part of Lotus's technology. All their cars and all the things they made for people have this sort of interesting uh, monocoque aluminum frame. Uh, so we had a, our, you know, unique one of that, um, and you know, it 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 did. It is reminiscent of of Elise, but it has millions of dollars of changes and tooling and everything else to to make that car but it it had to it had to fit in the machinery mm. you know, the, the things that grabbed hold of the thing had to, to 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 fit so we were we were constrained we would have loved to have made the car a little bit wider you know but we that you can't do
1: that and in, in be in that factory so understood so you've you've really not not you single-handedly but you with big beautiful well-aligned teams have have disrupted two industries and i do wonder do you have you got a third in you <laughs> um no i'm not going to be starting another company if
0: that's what yeah. if that's what you mean so you know what i do now what i focus on now is is investing in in companies and investing in founders that uh, are gonna do that to other industries, which I think are important. And my focus is on, at Sparrow Ventures, my focus is on sustainability. So, uh, I, you know, although Sparrow invests in many different things, you know, my particular portfolio is all around companies that are, you know, helping agriculture in some way or helping water or, you know, CO2 emissions or pollution in general, or, you know, people's health through environmental health. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what interests me. So.
1: Makes sense. With, with of Ventures, what actually uh, kind of endeared you to, to their firm as opposed to other VCs?
0: Oh, they, they have a, uh, a couple of things that I think were great. First off, they're very, they, they believe in mission. They, they want companies that, you know, they want founders and founding teams that, that have a mission. It's not just the next shiny object, uh, but more importantly, they, really don't invest in stuff that is uh that doesn't have some sort of plausible path to make life better in the future and i know it sounds like oh, of course all companies are. that's really not the case um there are a lot of companies that uh that are out there that you know they make a shiny thing and people buy it and stuff but uh Sparrow is really focused on you know the health of the people and of planet and of of, of things that provide joy. Uh, and you know that's that's the kind of companies that I want to be associated with. And, and and I got to I got to be with them for a while just watching them you know in their deal meetings and watch you know turning down interesting companies but that didn't fit into their uh, sort of filter of, you know, is this a company that that makes life better? Uh, now it's not to say those companies weren't great but they just you know they didn't make life better so they didn't want to invest in those
1: do you, do you have any tips or tricks or calendar hacks or anything that can help lead more impactful productive lives
0: not really i mean i wish i i wish i knew some that would be that would be great uh, you know the, the one thing you know i will say is that it's possible to have you know, a positive impact on, on whatever you do. And, and it's whether that's, you know, your kid's school, you know, by showing up, like, I, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, just showing up is is a radical act uh, and, and caring is, is, is a radical act. And it really does, you know, make a difference. It certainly makes a difference in schools and in local politics. Uh, and and I think it also makes a difference in, you know, companies that if you think about, you're going to start a company or you're going to be, go work for a company, you want to work for one that you sort of, you believe in the mission. Like I, I just, you know, because you're going to spend so much of time in, in your life working for that company or, or being part of that project. You want it to be something that you care about uh, and not just, oh, it's a job. You know, I, you know, work at some company that I, I, I don't, I don't even know that what the product is. I, I, I just don't feel that that's uh, you know, uh, I know many people who do that and they're fine, but i I just for me it, it doesn't work. It, it's just it, and and there's so many things out there. we're re, we're reinventing so much of the economy all the time that that to not go after something that's that's compelling that way uh, and that makes a difference just seems kind of a waste. I don't know
1: very well put. but I have heard you speak about a commonplace book. I was thinking that may be one of these.
0: oh yeah, so that's something I do do. So there is this a commonplace book is something from from ages ago from you know the you know, Renaissance probably uh, where people would anything that they found interesting uh, and, and this is at a time when you know natural philosophy you know was the beginning of science and stuff people would write these things in and it might be poetry that they found interesting or that they created that they they, they liked it might be um, you know, some observation of a beetle, uh, you know, that they they run across or 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 some custom that they thought was interesting that they encountered in the countryside or a different city. And they would write these things in in their commonplace book. And the interesting thing is they deliberately did not organize it. They deliberately made sure that, uh, and they had mechanisms to make sure that you weren't organizing it, but could still kind of find things. So there's a bunch of different like, you know, I think Ben Franklin had published his particular way of getting into his commonplace book. But the idea was that all of these different experiences and these different ideas would sort of would, would would you know, sit there in your book. And then when you go went and looked at it, um, you wouldn't, you know, order them by anything. You know, you would just open it up and you'd sort of see if you could find connections between those. Uh, and I, I've always found that uh, it's actually from a book called, um, I think, "Where Good Ideas Come From." And they just mentioned this technique and it as it turns out you know modern digital things are really easy for that because both you can look at it in random order you can look at it um you know obviously you can do a search on a keyword or whatever uh so it to, to me those are like the the, the, the modern commonplace books so I, I i save all kinds of random thoughts random notes things you know weird articles that i find that you know, are interesting and and hope hope that by looking at it at some point i have some insight uh, whether or not that actually happens i don't know but i love the idea of it and, and do you
1: keep a digital and uh and an analog one
0: I, I only keep a digital one I, I it, yeah, yeah. I,
1: my
0: my daughter you know uh has a beautiful sort of journal and it's gorgeous and it's beautifully highlighted and her notes from classes look you know like beautiful that just isn't i i you know I'm the same. I, I, you know, I I type stuff in I'm really I'm a great typist so
1: and what what app or what program do you use for this
0: I should just use Evernote
1: okay I I got to tell you it is such a pleasure to speak with you and I really appreciate your time
0: yeah this is this is this has been great fun and uh, and thank you for including me in your podcast
1: thanks for listening We hope you found listening as meaningful as we did. Personally, I was inspired by Mark's humility and the Tesla founding story. Hope you also found some value in his approach to leading a more impactful life. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing on whichever platform you're listening from. And leave us a review or a comment and let us know your favorite moment, or feel free to recommend a guest for a future episode. And thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. Impact in the 21st Century is a podcast by Simbi Foundation which is a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education in refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning materials and sustainable energy through a microgrid to power entire schools and communities. Feel free to check out more of our work in Uganda and India at www.simbifoundation.org. Thanks again for listening and see you in the next one.